Uh, we're in the middle of a, a study on Exodus. We began a few weeks ago, and we're in Exodus chapter 2 now. And we're, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at Moses. Uh, I remember one of my Old Testament professors, and I think he was quoting one of his Old Testament professors when I was in seminary, and he, he said this. He said, the way that you look at Moses will shape or have something to say about the way that you look at Jesus. And vice versa, the way that you look at Jesus will have something to say or shape the way that you look at Moses. And, uh, and, and that's the kind of thing, if you know anything about Moses' life, that's the kind of thing that might cock your head to the side and say, uh, really? Uh, what are you talking about? Well, what he was talking about is that Moses is a type of Savior. He's a type of Savior that points to our true Savior in Jesus Christ. Um, he, he, uh, there is no way that Moses is equipped to accomplish the salvation for his people that Jesus is. He can't be for reasons we're actually going we're gonna to see in this passage. Uh, but he is pointing us to our Savior in Jesus Christ. And so that's the question that we're asking all the time is, what is Moses telling us about what it means to belong to Jesus? Uh, last week, we looked at God's providential hand moving in Moses' very early childhood. He was born under the threat of death to Hebrew baby boys, just like Jesus was. And he was held from the prying eyes of a king, just like Jesus was. But all of that shows us that the Lord was at work in a special way in Moses' early life. What it doesn't tell us is what kind of man he would become. And so that's what we're going to look at, at this morning is this grown-up Moses. Uh, Stephen, the, the martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7 will tell us he's about 40 years old when this happens. So we're going to look at adult Moses and we're going to ask these questions. How does this, how does this adult Moses teach us about who Jesus is? I'm going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two people, two Hebrews, were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. And now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. 
He cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us about yourself, uh, that you would show us your son, Jesus, that Jesus, your Holy Spirit, would uh, be amongst us and at work right now in these next few moments, uh, instructing our hearts uh, in the way that you would have us. Would you encourage, uh, would you encourage us, would you convict us Uh, in all things, would you strengthen our faith and, and our desire to know you, Lord Jesus, more and more? And would you help me, uh, help me to serve these people well, uh, to be faithful to you, and to honor you with the words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lists are fun. Back when I was in college and I lived with uh, several guys, one of the, our favorite things to argue about, you know, fun, fun arguments, our favorite things to argue, argue about were our top five lists of all kinds of different things, like... You know, like top five movies to watch when you're on a date or top five brands of potato chips. And we could go back and forth for hours, lists and lists and lists. It was always fun. And that's why when, uh, when this was about 20 years ago now, when the American Film Institute put out a list, they were celebrating their 100th anniversary. Uh, 100 years of cinematic history. It's kind of hard to believe. But they were celebrating it by putting out all kinds of top 100 lists, top 100 comedies, top 100 actors. And, uh, and when they did that, I was all in. And I wanted to see, and we could argue with each other about it. But they had a really fascinating list. It was the top 100 heroes in cinematic history. And when you look through it, you actually, uh, you, you know, you're reminded of some of your favorite characters in, uh, in the movies. You're reminded that Obi-Wan Kenobi was actually a great hero, and Indiana Jones was, is number two on that list, which, uh, which kind of surprised me. Aaron Brockovich is on that list, and uh, of course, number one on that list might be my favorite literary and cinematic hero. It's Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and when you look through this list, what you see is a pattern start to emerge. Uh, they all have several things in common. Uh, They all have an insatiable appetite for justice. They have a sharp antenna. These are people who cannot stand idly by and watch injustice perpetrated right in front of their eyes. They can't do it. Uh, All were attacked, uh, questioned or attacked in some way uh, about their true loyalties, who who they were truly loyal to. And here's the kicker. Each one of them was emerging during an especially dark time when a hero was needed. All three of those key elements in what constitutes a hero. And I say that because when you read Exodus, by any category you would use to define a hero, you would have to say this book is positioning Moses as a type of hero for his people. You can see that he has a sharp antenna. For justice. Uh, he, he is not someone who can stand by and watch injustice perpetrated right in front of him. He can't do it. Uh, you see that he is questioned. <laughs> he is questioned about his true loyalty 
what his actual identity is, who, who, who are his people. And finally, this is all against the backdrop of, a, uh, of an incredibly dark and difficult time for God's people. All three of those right there. And so that's what I want to talk with you about. I want to talk about the question of who Moses is. I want to talk about his good desire. And finally, I want to talk about the great need of God's people. Those are my three points, okay? Moses, the hero. We're going to look at him in all three of those different ways. First, the big question. This is a question that really emerges early in Moses' story. And, uh, and it follows him it, really his entire life. And it's, a, and, and it's a question of what his national identity is or who are his people, the people that he's mostly loyal to. If you remember from earlier in chapter 2, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. Uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is, is, uh, is his adopted household, but he's also born to a Hebrew family. And so the question is this, is he really an Egyptian who, through, uh, uh, who, who just happened to be born uh, a Hebrew baby, or is, he, is his chief identity a Hebrew child uh, who happened to grow up through very unique and special circumstances in an Egyptian household? And, and I would just say that that's a fair question to ask. It's a fair question to ask. It would be fair for us to ask that of the text, and it would be fair for uh, those who are around Moses in this day to ask that question. Uh, some of you have watched the movie Killers of the Flower Moon. It came out about a year ago. Uh, and I, if you haven't watched it, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I just want to talk about the first scene because it begins with profound grief. These Osage tribal elders are gathered up and they're beginning to grieve the loss of their way of life. And it's because they see that their children are growing up being influenced by things outside of their tribe. They're growing up with teachers who aren't their people. They're growing up with a language that, uh, that, uh, that isn't their language. And, and they can just see where this whole thing is going. And you could ask that of, of, uh, of Moses. He's growing up with Egyptian teachers and Egyptian resources. Like, what kind of man is he going to become? Well, the text is very much seeking to answer that question right away in verse 11. It's noting this twice. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian bearing a Hebrew, and it repeats it, one of his people. It's making the point that no matter what we might think of Moses or what the people around him think of Moses, Moses very much considers himself uh, one of the Hebrew people. And you see it because of uh, the ways that he moves in this story. You see it because he intercedes on behalf of one of the Hebrew slaves who's being beaten by an Egyptian. He can't let that happen. And, And the way that he talks to two of these Hebrew men who are fighting with each other. He gets in between them. And, uh, and it's interesting what he says. He says, uh, wh- why do you strike your companion? He's talking like he's one of them in that case. He's like, hey, fellow Hebrew men, we can't treat each other that way. And this is where he receives a, just a stinging rejection from his own people. When somebody looks back at him and says, who made you judge or authority over us? That's one rejection. It's a rejection of his authority. 
And then, and then he says this. He says, are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Uh, one of the things he's saying to him is that actually uh, you're neither Egyptian nor you're Hebrew. You're neither. And so at this point, Moses is scared. He knows that he's been found out because of what he does. Pharaoh finds out, sends out a search party for him, and Moses has to go on the run. So here you have Moses alienated from both his adopted household and his ethnic nation on the run. His people don't consider him his people. Pharaoh doesn't consider him an Egyptian. And Moses is claiming his identity. It's all right there. It's a bit of a mess. And Moses seems to have found a life when he goes into foreign territory, doesn't he? I mean, he finds a wife, a father that he respects, Ruel. He'll later come to be known as Jethro as the story goes on. His wife, Zipporah. He has a son. And the word the word that the story uses uh, to communicate how Moses is doing is is content. But you still get a sense for the stirrings of Moses' heart when he names his son, Gershom. He has, a, he has a lot of what you would ask for or what he was looking for, but he names his son Gershom. I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. You can see that his heart is still restless for his people. Some of you might understand what that feels like. Some of the deepest wounds that we will suffer is when people don't feel about us the way that we feel about them. And we can experience that just about everywhere we go. Uh, In the places where we work, in the places where we play, and the places where we worship. But I don't think anything cuts so deeply as experiencing that in the places that we call home, amongst the people that we call our people. You should know Jesus knew what that felt like. John 1 tells us that he came to that which was his own, and his own people did not receive him. And not only that, but it seemed like everywhere he went, his authority was being questioned. He would do something, and somebody would ask him, by what, by what authority are you doing this? And in fact, when you read Jesus' story, you might, you might just feel like uh, telling him, when are you just going to give up on these people? You could ask that story of Moses, too. Moses, you got out. You're in the clear. You've got this life Why haven't you just given up on this people? You can ask the same question of Jesus when you look at him like, Jesus, why are you still going? These people are continually rejecting you over and over and over again. Why are you still going? And and the truth is, is that we could ask that question of ourselves. Like, why, why hasn't Jesus rejected me? Why is he still pursuing me? Why will he ever give up on me? I know the things that are in my heart. I know what's there. I know what I've done. Why hasn't he given up on me? 
One of the things I want you to see in this passage, I want you to look at Moses' heart that still beats with deep desire for his people. And I want you to see Jesus' heart that still beats with a restless desire for you. And know that Jesus is not giving up on you or the person sitting next to you. He is not giving up on you. He has a restless desire for you. And not just you, but a desire for the whole world. And you, 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 look, at, uh, you look at Moses' story and you see that he's got this big heart with these amazing desires that take him to this these curious places. It's a big heart surrounded by big problems that expose real limits into what he can do about it. Uh, he simply cannot sit still. You see that? It's like every time he comes, every time he comes across something difficult that he sees, he has to he has to act. And you see him do it two times. The first time is in. Uh, verse 12, when, he, uh, when you have an Egyptian who's beating a Hebrew slave. And then you see it again when he sits down by a well. Now, if you've read Genesis up to this point, you know that, uh, that every time somebody sits down by a well, it means somebody's about to get married or they're looking for a wife, right? And that's, that's happening. Like Moses is sitting down by a well and it looks like romance is in the air. But the first thing that he has to do is he has to to uh, protect these young ladies at the well from these harassing shepherds, who, whoever they are. Now, um, I, I tend to believe that Moses probably had a lot of things on his mind when he decided to stand up and move, right? Like uh, maybe one of these daughters of, of uh, Ruel stood out to him. You know, he's got to move. But one thing is really clear at this point is that Moses is someone who, who, who just can't let anything go. He has to stand up and fight. He's got a, a big heart. But you also see that it is, he is surrounded by big problems. Uh, you know, it, it, one of the things the story is telling us is that uh, wherever Moses goes, wherever, whether he's in Egypt or he's in Midian outside Egypt, that he, he seems to continue to encounter wickedness and injustice in all kinds of ways. It's telling us that this isn't only an Egypt problem, that this is, this is a human problem. And, and it exposes real limits on what he's able to do to actually solve the big problems that he's, really, that, that he's truly facing. Like, what are you going to do, Moses? Are you going to free your people by murdering one Egyptian at a time? Is that going to work? Uh, you can imagine that there are a lot of uh, scholars have a lot of different takes on what Moses did in, in this story, whether it was right or it was wrong. Uh, there are many people that I respect that have found that, to me, I just don't understand it, but they found a way to really justify Moses killing this Egyptian. And I, I, I have a problem uh, I find those arguments unconvincing, and I'll tell you why. Uh, uh, the first, it's because I think Moses himself knows that what he's doing is wrong. You see him look this way and that, and uh, you see him hide 
this uh, Egyptian and the slave trying to cover it up. I think that's pointing us to, to he knows that he would be in trouble if he's discovered about this, that what he did was wrong. It also just seems like Moses is borrowing a page out of the uh, Egyptian handbook of violent ways to solve your problems. Uh, the verb that's used when, when, uh, when Moses beats this Egyptian man is the same one that's being used when the Egyptian man was beating the Hebrew slave. I think he's, just, he's just saying that it's just pointing us to that Moses is someone who's actually learned a lot from Egyptian ways over time, and he's reacting impulsively in this way. One person put it this way, that, that Moses had to be exodused out of Egypt, and Egypt had to be exodused out of Moses. And he's being shown that no matter, no matter what he does by his own strength, he's unable to actually solve the big problems that he has a, a deep concern for. So the real question is, what do you do? What do you do? You know, the Bible has this habit of doing this to us. It, 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 uh, it is very honest with us about how difficult life can be and about how dark the world can feel. It's very honest about this. But it is also at the same time telling us that there are real limits on what we can do about it. Well, we can, we can do what Moses did. We can run away. You know, the, the, the verb that was used for Moses fled is the same word that's used for when the Israel people left, left Egypt. The, 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 we can exodus. But as time and experience has told us and, 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 uh, and our history has told us that just retreating all the time and trying to find a place to build a perfect life that's good for just us and the people we love, well, that, that doesn't really work. And you can see that Moses' heart is still restless even when he does that. Or here's another one. We could try to outlast the deep problems that we're surrounded by. Uh, in verse 23, you see the king of Egypt dies. And maybe things are, are now going to finally get better. There's a new king that's following. The, the one that was oppressing God's people has died. And maybe things are going to get better for God's people at this point. Well, that, that's not really going to work either, right? I mean, uh, we'll find that the, the new king of Egypt is just as ruthless and just as oppressive. So waiting and retreating, those aren't really valid options. What is this, what is this teaching us if we, if we have real limits and uh, the needs of the world are so big, what is this teaching us as God's people to do? I think one of the things this story is doing is teaching us as God's people to train our eyes on the only one who can truly deliver on what is needed both in the world and in our hearts. And that certainly seems to be what the people are doing here in this passage. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They are training their eyes on God, and they groan. And when they groan, 
They are confessing their great neediness. I call this a holy groaning. That's the way I like to think about it. It's a holy groan before the Lord. This is what it looks like to, to look to God and just say, I got nothing. And so I groan about it. I heard a story uh, recently about a man who... Um, I heard a man, about a man who would lay in his bed and he would remember things that he had done in his past. And things he had said, and he'd just remember these things. And he'd feel the weight of the guilt and the shame that came with it. And he would let out an audible groan. And I remember that story stood out to me. It was about a 30-second story that I heard, but it stood out to me because I, I knew that I had done the same thing. And maybe you have too. Uh, when we remember things that we've said or things that we've done, we can ask the question, like, why did I do that? We still carry the weight of it today. Like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I not do that when I could have? Like, what is that? That's the weight of guilt, and it's the weight of shame that's following us. And we can ask the question, is there any freedom from it? Is there any release from these things? And so we groan. You know, there's a real difference between admiring a hero from distance, from afar, from reading, you know, something you read about in a book or watching a movie or read about in Exodus, There's a real difference between admiring it and analyzing it and realizing your need of one. We groan when we realize we need a Savior. And we need to see how God responds to his people when they groan before him. Verses 24 and 25 are magical verses that teach us about God's disposition toward his people when we look to him and we groan. And the magic is in the verbs. Look at this response. He hears their groaning. He remembers his covenant with them. He saw them and God knew. What is this telling you? It's telling you that even though, even when we bear a burden of guilt that God is bearing a burden of love for his people. And when we look to Jesus, uh, what we're seeing is this greater Moses actually inhabits each one of these verbs that are listed in this passage. He is the one who hears our groaning. We pray to the Lord Jesus and we trust that he hears us. He is our high priest who hears us. Uh, He gives us his Holy Spirit uh, and his Holy Spirit actually participates in our groaning, it says he groans with us, with groans, groanings too deep for words. Jesus is the one through whom we come into covenant relationship with God. He remembers, he is the way that we are remembered, and he sees you, and most importantly, he knows. Now, what, what does it mean that he knows? Well, in the Bible, he knows, or God knew, could mean several different things. Uh, one of the things that it could mean, they all point to a relationship with him. One of the things it could mean is that he has chosen us uh, for himself, that we become his people. He knew us before the foundation of the world. It could mean that. 
Sometimes when it says God knew, it means it implies deep intimacy, relationship, as two friends, deep, close friends know each other. Sometimes it means that he knows us with deep empathy and understanding. Hebrews tell tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet in every way was tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's teaching us all three of these things. Well, in this passage, which one is it? The answer is yes. It's all of them. God knew his people, and he responds to his people in their neediness, with great knowing and love and pointing to the deep relationship, the burden of love that he has for his people. That's where the peace is found. Uh, I began by telling you about some fictional uh, heroes. I want to close by telling you about uh, a real-life hero. Uh, This was... A year ago on Mount Everest, you might have heard this story. It was a spring. It was one of the deadliest springs on Mount Everest ever this last year. I think about 13 or 14 people died while trying to hike up to the top of Mount Everest. And uh, if you're hiking to the top of Mount Everest, you probably <laughs> you probably hired a company uh, which employs Sherpas who help you get up and down the mountain, and they carry bags for you, and they. Uh, give you wisdom about how to do it. They lead you to the top and get you back down. That's their whole goal is to get you back down safely. And uh, one spring day, uh, as a Sherpa was leading his own group up in, into what they call the death zone, uh, this was a place where it was extremely cold and there's such lack of oxygen. That's where a lot of the deaths happen right there in that what they call the death zone. And he came across another climber. And this climber was just in the snow, leaning up against the slope, holding on to his rope. And he could tell, this Sherpa could tell that even though he hadn't died yet, he was very near death. And this is how deaths happen. And he knew he had to, had to, had to act right away. And so he turns around and he, he convinces his group to cancel their trip to the summit and immediately started to help this guy. And the way he did it was he strapped this guy to his back like a backpack. They wrapped him in sleeping pads and uh, strapped him to his back. And for six hours, he made his way down the mountain and saved this guy's life. And people say that uh, he, he almost died himself trying to save this guy's life. And it was an amazing story. It was an amazing heroic story of a guy who, was, who almost lost his life trying to save the life of somebody that he didn't even know. And perhaps as interesting as the story is what happened afterward. It's uh, the, the, the climber whose life was saved went back home and he talked all about how he got to the top of Mount Everest, but conveniently left the story of how he, his life was saved out. I mean, it, apparently he was on uh, these interviews. He was interviewed online. Uh, he was interviewed on TV. He wrote articles and, and left that whole part of the story out. And as news leaked out about what happened, people were furious. (laughs) Uh, It looked like this guy, the guy who was saved, blocked his Sherpa 
on Instagram. <laughs> he cut off all communication and did everything he could to just silence the story. And people were so indignant. There was so much backlash all over social media directed at this guy because he couldn't, he didn't, he was too embarrassed to be able to admit that he needed rescue. And one of the things I want to tell you is that you don't need to be embarrassed about that. Because Jesus knows you. He knows you with deep love. I don't know how that Sherpa felt, but one of the things this passage is telling you is that Jesus, our true hero and our, our true Savior, knew who he was coming to when he come, came across us in our deep need. In fact, Scripture talks about him as the one who pursues his people with deep love for them. And instead of strapping us to his back, what does it say? It says that our sins were laid across his back and that he saves our life by going to the cross to suffer the burden of judgment so that we never have to. Our guilt and our shame that we remember won't be remembered ever again before us because our Father looks at us and he remembers his son, Jesus Christ. And so we are his. A hero and his rescued people forever. Let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you expand our hearts uh, to appreciate again what it means to be yours. Would you animate us with your love for us and increase our love for you? Would you give us this joy? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.